Montel here, and thank you so much for tuning in to this edition of Free Thinking. And today, we have a really, really special guest. He's a pastor of the Greenleaf Christian Church, Disciples of Christ in Greensboro, North Carolina. And he's the president and senior lecturer of Repairers of the Breach. He's also the president of the North Carolina NAACP, the co-founder of the Poor People's Campaign, and the leader of the Moral Monday Movement. He's a fierce voice for the civil rights of all people whom, and I will tell you, be 100% honest, I've uh, been with Reverend Dr. Barber on two different occasions and, you know, worked with him recently uh, opposing an extremely odious bill in North Carolina that sought to regulate where trans people could have had the audacity to, where they could use a restroom. Welcome to Free Thinking, Reverend Dr. Barber, and thank you so much, sir, for your leadership and on so many important issues, sir. Well, Montel, it is an honor to be back with you. Um, I greet you today on behalf of the Poor People's Campaign National Call for Moral Revival, and I love that title, Free Thinking. If there's anything we need right now, it's some free thinking. <laughs> Absolutely, my friend. And thank you for jumping right in, because that's what we need to talk about, is the Poor People's Campaign and the Moral Monday Campaign, an event that you schedule now for September 14th to encourage folks to vote. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? The Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, we started organizing in 2017, and now we have over 43 state coordinating committees. We've had a major uh, six weeks of activism in 2018, where more than 50,000 people participated. 5,000 people did civil disobedience in 41 states in the District of Columbia. We produced a moral uh, platform and budget, uh, uh, an agenda for the healing of the nation. This past June 20th, we had 3 million people to come online for the Poor People's uh, Assembly, Mass Assembly, and Moral March on Washington, a digital gathering. Montel, we had planned to be in D.C., but because of COVID, uh, our advisors said, no, don't do it that way. And actually, it worked better for us because we wanted to put a face and a voice on the 140 million poor, low-wealth people before COVID, the 700 people dying a day from poverty and low-wealth before COVID the 87 million people either uninsured or uninsured before COVID, the 4 million people that get up every morning and buy unleaded gas and can't buy unleaded water before COVID, and then talk about what mismanagement of COVID has actually done. We're headed towards 50% plus of our people being poor and low wealth. I want folks to sit with that a minute. Uh, 700 people dying a day before COVID, 1,000 dying a day with COVID, and nearly... Six, it's going to probably be 55% of the people in the country who are poor and low wealth. That means poor or less than $400 away from emergency economics. So on September 14th, because we are hearing that the Trump administration and others are talking about putting people in our communities, and, and when I say our communities, I mean black community, white community, we are going to have a major session, a moral Monday, voting is power unleashed training. And rather than training trainers to go train people, we're going to train hundreds of thousands of individuals so they can train their families on voter protection and voter participation. Got two of the best legal firms out here, our brother Montel, Forward Justice, NAACP Legal Defense Fund. We're going to show people where the hot spots are. We're going to show them how to make sure that their vote is protected and how not to be intimidated. Because we found out, and the last thing I'll say, poor and low-wealth people represent 25% of the electorate now. 
In 15 states, if less, if, if between one and 19% of poor low wealth people voted that didn't vote, they change everything from the Senate to the presidency down. That is the place where the voter expansion can happen in this country that can change our democracy. Well, you know, sir, and I'm gonna ask you this question, and please forgive me because I know the answer will come from you correctly, but you know, you're talking about a movement that is tapping into the heart and the soul of people trying to remember and recognize the nonviolent part of this activism that we should have. Getting people to understand that through nonviolence, they should show up at the polls and vote and do it that way. But there are so many people out here who are saying that they believe that, you know, unfortunately, Dr. King's message is antiquated these days and is quaint almost because, you know, violence seems to be the only thing that is registering among people. And now we see that both sides understand the violence that violence is registers because they are actually hiding and sneaking into our nonviolent protest and perpetuating violence so that it can be blamed on those who are trying to peacefully protest. What do you say about that? Well, we have a violent perpetrator in chief, first of all. You know, we haven't seen the kind of violent rhetoric and violent attitude in, at a high level in government like this since we saw George Wallace. Interestingly, I read uh, the other day, and I read it almost every two weeks just to keep myself reminded. In 1968, George Wallace did a uh, speech in New York running for president. Trump should really be charged with plagiarism because it's the exact speech with all of the things about violence, law and order, the lies about that, and stoking you know, violence. And then you have people that call protests, they, 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 um, uh, uh, they fuse the nonviolent protesters with the infiltrators. And you remember that happened to Dr. King, Montel, you know, Dr. Yes. King is 68, you remember in Memphis, he was having a nonviolent march. At that time it was J. Edgar Hoover put some people in there. They did violence. And then all of the papers said uh, Martin King's march was violent. When it wasn't violent, it was an infiltration. And we see, I believe that happening a lot today. But I also want to say what we what I'm saying to protesters is yes, we must do nonviolent protesting. You know, I've been to jail 13, 14 times. There's a time for that. And nonviolent protesting is not uh, is radical, it's not easy, it's not cheap, it's not lightweight. But you also have to do the most nonviolent revolutionary act that you can do, and that is vote. Because if you're going to if you're going to march to change policies, but then you don't march in the polls to change the people to make the policy. That's kind of counterintuitive. So you have to do it all. I, I, we're saying to people in our movement, the Poor People's Campaign, we believe in nonviolent civil disobedience when necessary. We've engaged it. But we say you have to push before the election. Then during the election, you got to make a practical decision. Who is closest to your agenda, right? And you may not get 100%. Well, who's 50%? Who's 70%? Somebody's 70, 80% close to your agenda, then you have to make the practical decision, vote for them, and then after the election, push them. That's what we forget about the civil rights movement. 64, we elected, well, I wasn't there. My parents elected Lyndon, uh, 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 Lyndon Baines Johnson. Lyndon Baines Johnson had been a segregationist, but he had been okay on some issues. So they elected him because they didn't want Barry Goldwater. They knew what he was. And then after the election, they pushed Lyndon Baines Johnson. What we have to do is hook it all together and stop thinking that 
one vote or one march is going to solve anything. It requires a long-term movement with deep commitments. When you bring up Lyndon Bain Johnson, you remind me of a statement that he made that I think is something also taken out of the Trump playbook, and that is, tell the poorest white man that he's better than the richest black man, and he'll let you reach in his pocket and take all his money. <laughs> and a lot of people don't remember that, but that's exactly when you look at what Trump is doing. Look at what Trump is doing these days. He is, and 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 but and we can we can fight against that. You know, I've been all over this country, pulling together people from Alabama to from Alabama to Appalachia. And I've been in the hills of Kentucky. We got people from the holler to the hood together in Kentucky, and they changed the governor when they got together. When they started seeing, for instance, that the same people that push police violence against black people and push racist voter suppression are the same people that block health care and block living wages. And we were, able, we were able to show some folk, Montel, this. I was in a room one time in, up in eastern Kentucky, in the mountain. And we put up a map, and the map showed all of the states that were racist voter suppression states. Then we showed them all of the people who benefit from racist voter suppression. Most of them are white people who use race to get elected. Then we showed them their record. And one guy got up and said, damn, Reverend, they've been playing us against each other. I said, right. I said, the same guy that comes back here and lies to you about fraud and says they're going to support, they, 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 they want to protect the vote. They want all these racist voter suppression laws. It's the same man that took your union rights in the coal mine. And the guy said, well, we need to get together. And that's what the Poor People's Campaign is doing. Why? Because, as I said, in 15 states right now, including the Southern states, if you get just nine, anywhere from one to 19% of poor and low wealth people of every race, creed and color that didn't vote the last time to vote around an agenda, they change everything. And we found three reasons why they don't vote. Number one, a lot of time is voter suppression. Number two is transportation. And number three is the politicians never speak to them. Now, Democrats and Republicans. We've been pushing Democrats to say, you have got to stop talking about people trying to make it into the middle class and say the word poverty and poor, because Republicans racialize poverty. Too often Democrats run from poverty. Poor people make up 25% of the electorate, 43% of this nation, 140 million people, 66 million of them are white, 26 million of them are black. You cannot have that level of your population facing something, and it doesn't even come up in your political dialogue. Well, you know, now when you're talking about uh, you know voter suppression, this is going to be the year of the ultimate voter suppression. You know, the president's calling for sending monitors out, sending out federal troops to voting to, to, to voting stations. He's even called in the last couple of days to have people actually commit a felony and try to vote twice. So, I mean, what what do you see as uh, November second, man? I mean, do you think that this is something that can be overcome, especially when the you know, the, the deck seems to be so stacked against us. Well, we better overcome it. That's one of the reasons we're doing this voting uh, uh, is power unleashed September 14 training. If they're sending people in, we're going to send people out. We we'll send people out armed with the right information, armed with the tenacity. We're saying to folk, you have to vote at all costs. Uh, you know, we are going to focus deeply on these areas because a lot of them, it doesn't take large percentages. Uh, we don't have a justice department, you know, that will fight for us now because Barr is on the side of Trump. And, oh, no and, and right. And some things he won't be able to do. I don't think some of the sheriffs in certain places are going to do. Trump can't make them. But we have to decide this time we're going to vote. And what we're saying, people, if you, if you vote early, first of all, 
like in North Carolina. We can vote early. So don't wait. Vote early. Vote by absentee. If you choose to vote on election day, go prepared to stay. We're going to train people. So take your chair with you. Take some water with you. Take two masks with you. Take some gloves with you. But for God's sake, vote. Do not let them turn you away. The reality is it's more of us than it is of them. Trump lost the last election by three to four million votes. He won by 100,000 votes in three states. In those states, there are 2.1 million poor and low-wealth people that didn't vote in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania that could have voted, already registered. We have to start think, seeing ourselves. You know that script in the Bible where it says they went into promised land and 10 came back and said, we're grasshoppers, but two came back and said, no, we're not grasshoppers. We can fight and beat these giants. Well, we are not grasshoppers. It's actually more of us. And we have to overwhelm, uh, we have to have an overwhelming turnout. This is no time for people to sit home. I'm actually uh, working with some people and I'm gonna start saying to businesses, if you say you care so much about Black Lives Matters, about essential workers, then give them free time off the weekend of voting and on voting day. Give them time off. There's some corporations, Montana, that are already doing that. You might want to start calling on to do that because you can't call people essential and then treat them, don't give them the essentials they need. You can't treat them as one they said, like a hero, call them a hero and then treat them like a zero. So this, this is really about our democracy. What, 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 what people should be troubled by is Trump is pulling from an old playbook, this law and order foolishness, and it's poison that can work unless, especially if the turnout is low. That's what he's betting on, a low turnout. He really can't win if there's a mass turnout. And he can't win if we turn North Carolina and Florida or North Carolina and Georgia. All you got to do is take two southern states away from their calculus. But here's the thing, lastly, Montel. I've said to Democrats and others, if you took all of the southern states from Maryland to Texas, that's 193 electoral college votes. For too long, extremists who call themselves Republican have counted on that 193 electoral college vote being given to them without a real fight back. The too often Democrats have written off the South. Can't do that anymore. Because if you change just two Southern states, it's over. Two Southern states flipping and they're not red states. They're unorganized states, and they're states where a lot of people didn't vote. Time Magazine did a study that said the majority people who made under $40,000 a year voted overwhelmingly against Trump. But the problem is they didn't vote in mass because too often the political structures do not reach for them. That's why the Poor People's Campaign is saying we can't wait anymore for the politicians to come give us a reason to vote. We have to do more. Mobilize, organize, register, educate ourselves to vote, and that's what we're gonna be doing. You know, I think it's a perfect juxtaposition is, you know, Donald Trump visited Kenosha, and then Biden visited Kenosha. And Biden's visit yesterday was calm and uh, really very, very, very spiritual. Right. Um, but at the same time, I'm not necessarily sure if he got to the crux and to the heart of where he needed to get to either. That's right. What was your view of the two visits? Well, they're very different. Trump went to stir uh, in, the, in, in the fire. He went as a prop. He went to try to create this um, dichotomy between the police and the people. Uh, uh, he went to spread his brand of racism. Biden did go to listen, to hear to talk directly to the people. 
Uh, I think that is critical. One is demagoguery, the other is leadership. But I didn't even admit it. We have to wait for some things to go, ways to go. And I would agree that we have to drill down even more. But I don't just think it's Biden. I think even the, 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 the House and the bills that we're talking about passing, there's one that's been passed that ought to be passed relating to um, police, racist police violence. But we got to add one more piece to it, Montel. And that is police need to know we support good police. We support those who try to do the right thing. We need them to speak up against their fellow officers who may be doing wrong. But they also need to know, if you murder somebody in my name, see, this is where this conversation goes. They kill somebody, it's in your name, Montel. It's in my name. Because a police person gets their power from the people. That badge represents us. So now you murdering in my name. You're not even doing it in your own name. And if you do that, you should have to face, if the DA doesn't charge you, and the, the, the state attorney general, you should face federal charges for murder, not just for violation of civil rights. I do not understand at all, especially coming out of the Democratic candidates and coming out of those people who think in terms of, of reshaping the police, why no one ever discusses the fact that their funding doesn't come from the federal government. It comes from that bottle of Coca-Cola you bought at the bodega. It comes from that bag of potato chips. It comes from that McDonald's hamburger. We fund the police. We pay their salaries. They work for you. It's not the other way around. And I don't understand why that's not discussed as much as it should be. And in that whole point, you know, let's talk about this for a second, because that's going to be another one of these rallying cries by the far right saying that, you know, all Biden wants to do, all black people want to do is defund the police when they really don't understand that the real term is not defund, it's rethink or rethink the usage of the funds how can we get our leaders in the field to start making those statements? When we walk around carrying signs that say defund the police, I think we play right into a racist hand. We have I think to be what we need to do is start outlining what it is we expect, what we mean by defund the police. What we really mean is rethink policing, hold them accountable, hold their budgets accountable, make sure that they understand where they get their paycheck from. That's exactly and, and we can do that. And, you know, if we take a, pit, a, a, a page out of the civil rights movement, you know, Dr. King brought up police brutality in the, in the March on Washington speech, which, by the way, what not I have the dream, it was normalcy never again. And what he was saying, normalcy, where we are is not right. We have to reform and rethink. We hold the, the, the money. An officer gets their power. They swear to protect and serve, which is what we really ought to be talking about. Not so much law and order, but safety and security. That's the real what we are. That's what police are designed to do. And we hold the power in legislation. We're going to have to start talking about this in terms of them acting in my name. You're not going to do this in my name with my power. Because I often say a police officer is the only person that can come to my door with a sheet of paper stamped by a judge or magistrate and take my wife or my children out of the house and I don't lose all my nonviolent sense. <laughs> yeah, right. you know what I'm saying? And that's too much power for a racist. That's too much power for a bigot. A gun and a badge and the ability to come to my house and, ext and extricate, take my children out and my wife out. And that's the only person that I would say, well, baby, I'll see you down to jail. Let me go get the lawyer. If you did it, and I love Montel, it wouldn't be no, oh, baby, I'm going to see you. Because <laughs> you're not coming to my house. The same is true too. That is too much power. And we have to start talking about it like that and, to, and, and talking about re reforming. We have to talk about adjusting. We have to talk about rethinking. 
because we have too much power invested in people who then think that they can act in a bigoted and racist way that costs life. But there's one other piece to this, Montel, I, I want to bring to the table. And that is, right now with the COVID and, 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 and Trump's doing and these rapid back to back police deaths we've seen on camera and a thousand people dying a day from COVID and 700 people already died from poverty. We are dealing with necropolitics, the politics of who lives and who dies. And America's gotta have a real serious conversation about that because policy, whether it be bad policing policy or bad healthcare policy or bad economic policy or bad uh, 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 labor policies, they are not benign. People die, man. And, and our first principle is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so I'm of the opinion that we are going to have to start evaluating, if we're going to deal with death, that we're going to have to evaluate every piece of public policy. And if that public policy creates disparate levels of death, whether among black people or white or brown or, or poor or Southern, then that policy is counter to our claims as a democracy. And we're going to have to deal with this, this, the, the, this, this, this necropolitics, this, this, this season of death that we're in, where the government is killing folk, whether it be by the police, whether it's denying people personal protection equipment, whether it's denying people healthcare in the middle of COVID, all of this stuff is deadly. And we're going to have to take it on. And America's going to have to decide that accepting death is no longer an option. We just cannot have a democracy where people are afraid you're gonna get killed by the policies of the state. I know you don't have a lot of time ago. One more question for you, sir. And this one is really, you know, it's, it, it's almost similar in a way to what you just answered. However, I think it begs for a deeper answer. How do you think this democracy can survive? Though, let's say that here comes November 2nd and we can eradicate the elephant in the room on that day. There are herds of elephants waiting to step in during the next go round. Yep. The attitude has already been deeply entrenched. The example has already been made on how to win and how to move the bar. There are too many people out there right now. You know, I've said this, this is going to sound like a racist comment. It's not. I don't mean it by race when I say it. But for the last 10 years, I've been saying we are living in the last stand of the redneck. America doesn't like the fact that within the next five years, this country will go from a country that's minority white or Caucasian to a majority minority, which is people of color. It's like right now when we heard the president's comments last night about those who serve in the military. Most people don't remember the fact that almost 45% of those that wear a uniform to, the, to protect and defend this democracy are people of color. And yes. Yeah. Yeah. And always have been since day one. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. now, how does this democracy survive? You know, can we get it? We, so we get a four-year reprieve, you know, with, you know, Biden, and then pray that possibly the country changes its attitude and gives a four-year reprieve mm -hmm. with Harris. How do we get beyond that? You know, when you, you raise something that we have to think deeply about, um, and I've said this even to Democrats, that demagoguery and racism and hate is never just overcome by the promise of calmness and good government. 
you over overcome demagoguery and hate by calling for reconstruction. That's what it took right after slavery, a second, a first reconstruction. It was beat down after about 20 years, but for a while there was this major reconstruction. Then you had the civil rights movement, which was a reconstruction. Uh, the, the, the New Deal wasn't as much a reconstruction. It, was a, it led to one. I mean, there were some thing, major things that happened in the New Deal. But reconstruction also says you got to change who's sitting in office and change policies and change how the whole system moves. And in fact, the Declaration of Independence says after a long train of abuses, the people have a right to alter the government. We've got to have a major alteration because you're right. We're going to be the first Western democracy that's seen this, that's gone from predominantly white to predominantly black and brown with the power and the resources that we have. And that scares the bejesus out of a whole lot of folks. That's what really this is all about. It's about changing demographics. The extremist Republicans know this is about the last time they'll have be able uh, in an electorate to have the majority. And, and Steve Bannon said what his goal was to destroy the administrative state but tear it apart and then hand it over, right? Similar to what folk did with South Africa, tore it apart and said, here, Mandela, you take it. We have to, we're gonna to have to address five issues. And if we have a change in the administration, it can't be, well, let's just keep things calm. Let's just go back to where things were before COVID because before COVID, as I said, 140 million people poor and low wealth, 61% of African-Americans were poor and low wealth. We're gonna to have to address systemic racism, systemic poverty, ecological devastation and, the, and health, denial of health care. The war economy, I'm a great supporter of veterans, but the war economy where people are making money off of war machinery while veterans have little of anything and they have food stamps, uh-uh. And, and then we're gonna have to address the false narrative of religious nationalism and white evangelicalism that actually seeks to consecrate all this other injustice and racism and evil. And we're gonna to have to have a movement of the people that continues to push. And we're gonna say, I have to say, if there's a new administration, you might not even have time for a 100 day uh, plan. You might need a 50 day plan, first 50 days. And if Democrats get the office, they got, can't be moderate. They're gonna to have to be reconstructionist. They're gonna to have to be transformative. They're gonna to have to do what needs to be done. Because the one thing we have learned with Trump and his extremist friend and McConnell, they will do what they want to quick. Right. So we can't now slow down on doing what's right. People are going to have to see our vote and major shift comes. And it means in this election, too, we can't just focus on the presidency. The Senate needs to change. Definitely. The Senate has got to change. Because do for the matter is you really have to say Trump McConnell. It's really not Trump's fault. If Trump is a criminal, McConnell is the getaway driver. Right. In a real sense. So the Senate has to change because as we sit here today, Montel, I'll give you one quick example. Senate McConnell has said that he's the grim reaper. He said on the film, even if Trump doesn't win and I'm the last man standing, don't worry, none of that stuff is coming to the floor because I'm the grim reaper. Well, what stuff is he talking about? Living wages, health care. And as, as of today, he has blocked fixing the Voting Rights Act for 2,600 plus days. In context, Strom Thurmond only blocked the Civil Rights Act of 57 for one day. Mitch McConnell has blocked fixing the Voting Rights Act for over 2,600 plus days. We call Strom Thurmond a racist. 
Nobody has really called him the, the Mitch McConnell that. And we have to call this stuff out. We have to see the Senate change, the president, but then we're gonna have to push neoliberals in the Democratic Party if they win. Not to be left, I don't like that language, left versus right is too puny. You know, what we need is some right versus wrong kind of politics. We need some fresh thinking. We need some justice thinking. We need, let's do this. Here's what I want folks to do, and I'll close. Why don't we just take the doggone constitution that says, it, when you sway yourself into office, you're supposed to establish justice, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, ensure domestic tranquility, and then later on in the 14th Amendment, it says it's uh, uh, guarantee equal protection under law. And lay those five principles on top of every piece of public policy. And if that piece of public policy doesn't fit, doesn't line up, it's not left, it's not right, it's unconstitutional. It's, 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 it's morally inconsistent, it's, uh, it's constitutionally inconsistent, morally indefensible, and it's economically insane. That's the kind of statesman and statewoman's policies we need, politics we need, that gets us out of these limited parameters of left versus right, Democrat versus Republican, uh, 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 um, liberal versus conservative. This democracy cannot survive. And Dr. King said in his last sermon, and his plan was, America may go to hell. And America may still go to hell if we don't take serious what we put in writing and on paper and let make sure that our policies measure up to that. And that's what I'm hoping. That's what I'm praying. That's what I'm fighting for. That's why we're organizing people, because without a movement, it's not going to happen. And it can't be a limited movement around one issue. Reverend? Dr. Barber, thank you so much for being a part of Free Thinking today. You just demonstrated what free thinking is all about. And I hope that your words reverberate. I hope I help them reverberate all throughout this country. So come November 2nd, we have something transformative happen. That's right. You have a great day, sir. Thank you for being here. And I'm sorry I kept you a little long, but I can't wait to have you back. Anytime you ever want to be on Free Thinking, let me know and you and I are here. Okay? Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Take care. Take God care. bless you. God bless. Bye-bye. And thanks so much for all of you out there for tuning in to Free Thinking with Montel. Thank you.